0: Now well, this morning we are returning to the Gospel of Matthew, chapter 22, and we're looking at another example of Jesus's authority expressed through his teaching. Before we get there though, I want to pose and consider the following. As a people, generally, we are not those who like to be subject to anyone. Not just people in general, but even as Americans, we don't want to be subject to anyone. We balk at the notion that anyone would have the right to tell us what to do, where to go, what to say, how to live. We push back on the idea of subjection to any kind of authority. And nowhere is that issue more tested than within the discussion surrounding taxes. With April 15th coming up, fast approaching, we are entering into Christmas season for the federal government.
1: And millions of
0: Americans will be filing and reconciling their books, making sure to pay their taxes. Of course, no one enjoys paying taxes. I've yet to find a person who gets excited about doing this. But the paying of taxes becomes all the more troubling, I think, because it oftentimes feels like the government is going to take the money that we use and operate it in such a way that is either dishonest or irresponsible or just plain wicked. But that is a common concern through all ages, Every single society, every single age has struggled with the very same thing. And this leads us, I believe, to ask this question. As Christians, what do we owe our government? What do we owe our government? Of course, this also gives us an opportunity to ask an even bigger question. And what is it that we owe to God? What do we owe? This morning's text is going to lead us into that exploration. So turn to Matthew 22 if you're not already there. The events of Matthew 22 take place in the middle of Passion Week. This is Tuesday, possibly Wednesday of that week. Jesus has ridden into Jerusalem on the back of a donkey, and he, is, uh, he rides into the sounds of shouts of praise. By Tuesday, his ears would have been filled with the shouts of scorn from the religious leaders of Israel. Well, why? Well, because Jesus' ministry is marked by polarizing truths polarizing truths, because on the one hand he claims to be the son of God the Messiah seeking to save Israel and on the other hand he claims that the religious leaders were apostate and therefore condemned both of these truths were not welcome as early as John chapter 5 they wanted to put him to death for blasphemy but they lacked the opportunity to do so but now he's in their front yard In the capital city of Jerusalem, he's preaching in the temple, and so far this week, he has confounded all of their efforts to disqualify him in the eyes of the people. After a series of parables, it becomes clear that the Jewish leaders, uh, or to the Jewish leaders, that Jesus is condemning them and passing judgment on them. And up to this point, their direct attacks have all blown up in their face, and now they have been publicly humiliated in front of the crowds. And so this leads them to attempt a new kind of tactic, which we're going to look at today in Matthew 22, verses 15 to 22. And the Pharisees went and plotted together how they might trap him in what he said. And they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? But Jesus perceived their malice and said, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they brought him a denarius. And he said to them, Whose likeness and inscription is this? And they said to him, Caesar's. Then he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And hearing this, they were amazed, and leaving him, they went away. Now, remember where we are. We're in the outer court of the temple. This is where Jesus has been for. At least a few hours to certainly a couple of days teaching every single day in the temple courts. He's already purged this court of all the vendors and the merchants a little bit earlier that week. And now the religious leaders, the Sanhedrin, perceive Jesus to be a threat to their power and they want to remove him completely, but they can't do it. Why? Well, because in Matthew twenty-one forty-six, it says they sought to seize him, but here's the thing. They feared the people. Because the people considered him to be a prophet. And so a frontal attack isn't going to work because they're going to have an uprising in their hands if they try to do it. And yet, verse 15, they were still plotting together to see how they might trap him in what he said. Whereas up to this point, it's been all about the chief priests and the elders, but now it's the entire party of the Pharisees. And who were the Pharisees? Well, in short, they were the religious conservatives in Israel, but they were particularly concerned about law keeping. They, they were so concerned about law keeping that they invented laws to surround the biblical laws in order to keep those laws intact. So they had, they called it a fence around the law. So they were legalists by every stretch of the, of the word. And they began to conspire together and plot together how they might trap him. The Greek word used here for trap literally means to ensnare, like you're catching an animal. And so they want to catch him in his words, but they know they can't do it alone. So verse 16 says that they link arms with the Herodians. Now, not much is known about the Herodians. Herodians are really the descendants of the dynasty of Herod. The the Herodian dynasty was an Idumean dynasty, which descends from the Edomites, And they clawed their way into power by ingratiating themselves to the Romans. They really had no inherent power at all. They just wanted power, and so they did whatever they could do to get it. So they don't care about biblical law. They only care about power. And on the surface, both of these groups, the Herodians and the Pharisees, they would have been at odds, except that they now have one common enemy, the one who's going to ruin the scheme for all of them, Jesus. Verse 16 says, that these two groups, they don't join forces publicly. It's not publicly. Rather, they send some of their young disciples to go in their stead to confront Jesus. So these young men, their disciples, are going on a covert operation to try and trap Jesus in his words. In fact, Luke 20.20 tells us that they watched him, Jesus, and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so as to deliver him up to the rule and authority of the governor. So there's a scheme in place here. These young disciples, maybe they're 17, 18, 20, 21 years old, younger men, they're going in as spies. And so they prepare to set their trap. Verse 16, they sent their disciples to him along with the Herodians and they said this, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. And so here's the setup. They're going to butter him up. That's what they want to do. They're seeming to be righteous students with earnest intent. They come to him when they address him by this formal title, teacher, rabbi. It's a respected title. Now remember, just a couple days before, even just a couple hours before, Uh, the religious leaders, they were attacking Jesus because he had no credential. Remember that? They're saying, by what authority do you do these things? So they didn't recognize him as a rabbi. They didn't recognize him as a teacher. But now the disciples go and say, oh, rabbi, oh, teacher. They're going to flatter him and try to trip him up. And so they say, teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. Now, here's the interesting thing. This is an accurate statement. It's 100% true, even if they don't believe it. They don't believe the words that are coming out of their own mouth, but yet it's true. Jesus is the way and the truth and the life, John fourteen six. So it's absolutely accurate that Jesus is truthful and teaches the way of God in truth. And then they add this, you defer to no one for you are not partial to any. In other words, Jesus never cited any other rabbi. Ever notice that? You read the Gospels, he never cites rabbi so-and-so and and, and rabbi so-and-so. He doesn't talk about any other Mishnah. He doesn't reference the Babylonian Talmud, anything like that. He only refers to the authority of the Scriptures and the authority of the Father given to him. So he doesn't show partiality to anybody. Well, why? Why did he not show partiality to anybody? Why didn't he draw certain people in and kind of make alliances I think John 2.24 tells us, Jesus on his part was not entrusting himself to them, for he knew all men. And because he did not need anyone to bear witness concerning man, for he himself knew what was in the heart of man. He didn't trust anybody. Now, even he had disciples around him. He entrusted something to them on some level, but he didn't tell them everything all the time, right? There were certain truths he withheld from them because he knew they couldn't handle it. What they didn't realize, however, the disciples of these two parties here, what they didn't realize is that at the moment they're trying to flatter him, Jesus could already see right through them. He knew it was going on right as it was happening. And so after pumping him with flattery in verse 16, they spring their trap in verse 17. Here's the trap. Oh, good teacher, they're, they're loading him up. Oh, good teacher, we know that you're truthful. We know that you teach the way of God and truth. So, the, so then tell us then, Rabbi, what do you think? Here's the question, is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Now, at first glance, it seems like an innocent enough question, doesn't it? Perhaps this is, you know, just something that they're curious about, sort of a theological or philosophical or ethical debate or a legal debate of the day. But in truth, this is perhaps probably one of the most loaded questions in all of Israel. How so? Well, just to back up a little bit, there were three types of taxes that the Jews would pay. The first was the temple tax. That was mandated by scripture. This was the tithe to maintain the ministry and the worship and the sacrifice in Israel. So you had to pay the tithe, the temple tax. The second kind of tax was the indirect taxes that they would pay. They would pay customs tax or sales taxes or just whatever operating costs they would incur through taxes. But then the third kind of tax, which is the one that was really sticky for them, the third tax was the poll tax. Where does this come from? Well, when the region of Judea, which is the southern region of of Israel, when when Judea came under direct Roman rule in the year 6 AD, the Romans imposed a poll tax to be paid by all non-Roman citizens. So the Romans would go in, they would seize a region, and if they didn't have citizens there, all the natives would have to pay this poll tax. It was essentially a tribute tax Tribute to be paid in honor and submission to Rome and to the Caesar himself. However, in response to this tribute tax, the poll tax, a Jew named Judas the Galilean led a revolt against Rome, citing the poll tax as the reason. They said, we're not going to pay tribute to any foreign government. He was later killed and the movement was disbanded. But his patriotic cause eventually morphed into a party that became known as the Zealots. The Zealots cite Judas the Galilean as their founder. Okay? In fact, it was these Zealots that would later uh, start the Jewish-Roman War in 66 AD, which would result in the destruction of the temple in 70 AD by the Romans. And so this poll tax was a, a hot-button issue. And frankly, the the poll tax, because it's not a ton of money, but the poll tax in itself was a symbol of Roman subjugation and oppression. They were paying this tax simply because the Romans were Romans. That's it. Of course, the Jews then cited Deuteronomy 17.15 as the reason for resisting the tax because God had told Israel this, Set a king over you whom the Lord chooses, one from among your countrymen. And then he goes on to say, May you not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countrymen. And so by this rule, they resisted the Romans. Of course, what they failed to realize is that this is actually God who had put the Romans over Israel. It was by his own doing. But they didn't want to acknowledge that or submit themselves to even that thought. And so here, these disciples of the Herodians and of the Pharisees, they're looking to entrap Jesus with this highly charged question. And they ask him, is it lawful to pay the tax? Now, certainly they don't mean lawful by Roman standards, because it was the law, right? So that's not what they're asking about. Rather, is it lawful biblically? According to biblical law, is it lawful to pay the tax? And here's the trap. Here's the trap. Ready? If he says that it is lawful that they can do it or they should do it to pay the poll tax, it's going to anger the crowd because the crowd, they don't want to pay it. And this is, remember, this is Passover week. This is a, a highly nationalistic, patriotic, zealous, religious group here that's coming to pay worship to God and make sacrifice on this holy week. I mean, this is supercharged. So if Jesus is walking around telling all these Jews to, oh yeah, go pay your taxes to Caesar, they're going to get really angry. Because they don't want to see themselves as being submissive to Roman oppression. And furthermore, even if he did say to do it, they would just throw Deuteronomy 17.15 in his face. Well, the Bible says not to. And so if he says that, he's going to be stuck. And so saying that they should pay the taxes is going to get Jesus in trouble with the crowds and it's going to give the Pharisees the perceived moral authority over him. They're going to say, see, we told you guys. He's told, he doesn't understand the Bible. He's not a prophet at all. However, here is the other side of it. If he says that they should not pay the poll tax, the crowds will cheer, okay? But if he says that they're not going to pay the poll tax, the Herodians, the Herodians now are going to go back to their friends in Rome, and they're going to say that Jesus is a zealot. And they should come and arrest him for being an anarchist. So, what is he going to say? What is he going to do? No matter what, which way he slices it, he's going to have a hard time, right? Mark actually records that they asked this question, they asked this. So, shall we pay or shall we not pay? They press him. What do you think? Should we pay the tax or not pay the tax? Give it to us straight. Verse 18. But Jesus perceived their malice and said, why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Well, they weren't expecting that, (laughs) right? So Lord, he saw right through the charade. He knows what's going on. These weren't earnest young disciples who wanted to learn the truth. And I was chewing on this this week. These are all the disciples of all these high-ranking Pharisees. You know, I just wonder, was the Apostle Paul in this group? I really wonder. It's Jerusalem. It's Holy Week. He's there with Gamaliel. I just wonder if he was one of these guys trying to trip Jesus up. That's speculation, but it's fun to think about, isn't it? <laughs> but here's the thing. They, they're spies. They're trying to trip him up. They perceive him to be the enemy. And yet, he perceives this malice. He calls it what it is. This is malice, you guys. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Why does he call them hypocrites? Well because they had made this grandiose claim just 2 seconds before, right? That he was truthful and teaching the way of God in truth. And you default to nobody. Oh, you're so, you're such a unique and wonderful prophetic person, right? And yet they're coming to him not in truth, but in deceit, and they're treating him as a villain. So they're the ones that are not being truthful or doing anything in the way of truth. They're hypocrites. But there's another reason, I think. Look at verse 19. Jesus says, Show me the coin used for the poll tax, and they brought him a denarius. This is interesting. Rome had its own official currency, it was everywhere, right? But they also allowed nations, they allowed Israel to mint their own currency for their own internal purposes, okay? So when it comes to uh, doing their own business, and if you're going to transact currency in the temple, and we saw that a couple weeks ago, right? That Jesus overturned the tables of the money changers. Now, it's not wrong for them to make an exchange rate of currency. You know, they didn't want to bring a Roman coin onto the temple grounds to pay for the sacrifice, the animals and things like that. But they could have done that exchange outside the temple. That was why Jesus was so upset about that. But the idea of doing an exchange of currency, that's fine. You can use Jewish coins to to pay for Jewish things. That's not the issue. But when it came to paying the poll tax, they would have had to obtain this silver coin called a denarius, which is about a, a, a day's wage. And here's the thing. Remember where they are. Jesus is in the temple courts. He's teaching during Passover week. And neither he nor the disciples have this Roman coin on their person. And so he asks the men to get him one, and so they do. Keeping this in mind, the coin is not coming from their pocket, Jesus and the disciples. It's coming from the men who are accusing him of doing the wrong thing. Verse 20, he said to them, whose likeness and inscription is this. And so they've handed him the coin now. Okay, it's a little tiny silver coin. They hand him the coin and, they say, and he says, basically, what's on the coin? Look at the coin. What is on the coin? And what was on the coin? Well, on the front side of the coin, on the head of the coin, was the, the head impression of Tiberius Caesar, who is the Roman emperor. And around his face was written the inscription, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus. Okay, So the inscription signifies that Tiberius, as the Caesar, is son of the Roman deity. Anyone who was Caesar was regarded to be God over Rome. Okay, So the inscription signifies that Tiberius is now the son of God. Got it? The other side of the coin, the reverse side, is an image of Caesar sitting on a throne with the words Pontifex, uh, Pontifex Maximus, which is high priest, written on the back of the coin. And so this coin, as you can imagine, is highly blasphemous. Highly blasphemous. It violates the first and second commandment. The first commandment, they're declaring Caesar to be God, not Yahweh. And the second commandment, it features a graven image of this supposed deity. But notice who's carrying this idolatrous coin in the temple courts. It's not Jesus. It's not the disciples. It is the disciples of the religious leaders of Israel. And yet, they have the audacity to accuse him of doing something that is offensive or wrong in front of the crowds but it goes back to the question originally so should they pay this poll tax to the romans with this idolatrous currency should they do it verses 20 and 21 he said to them whose likeness and inscription is this they said to him caesar's then he said to them "Then render to caesar the things that are caesar's and to god the things that are god's this is an amazing response An amazing response. This silences the crowds and, frankly, sidesteps the trap. Well, how so? But let's break it down. The first thing he says is that they are to render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. The word usage here is really important. Jesus doesn't say give to Caesar or even pay to Caesar. This word render, epidemi, is give back, give back. It implies repayment of a debt of some kind. The point being this, if Caesar minted the coin and put his own face on it and then wants it to be paid back to him, he says, give him back what belongs to him. Pay your taxes. In fact, this is mandated by God. Well, why? Well, because God is the one who establishes government and thereby government sanctions taxes. Romans, uh, excuse me, Proverbs 8.15. The Lord declares, by me, kings reign and rulers do justice or decree justice. So God is establishing government. Daniel 2.21, God removes kings and establishes kings. He gives wisdom to the wise men and knowledge to the men of understanding. So whenever a leader comes to power, who put them there? It's not us. God establishes rulers and kings and prime ministers, and presidents, and dictators. God is the one who sovereignly ordains who belongs there. John Calvin famously said, when God wants to judge a nation, he gives them wicked rulers. So God is the one who establishes all human government, and he appoints rulers over his people. In fact, we read about this in Romans 13. We see this in Romans 13 regarding government. And again, this is very sticky for us, isn't it? We don't like to talk about this stuff. I got to this text this week and I said, oh boy, I get to teach on submission to governing authorities. Wonderful. It is wonderful, actually. Because this applies, I believe, to every single one of us because don't we struggle with questions like this? We're Americans, after all. But what does the Bible say? That's what we have to put our our nose into, is what does the Bible say? Romans 13, every person is to be in subjection to the governing authorities. For there is no authority except from God, and those which exists, exist are established by God. Therefore, whoever resists authority has opposed the ordinance of God, and they who have opposed will receive condemnation upon themselves. For rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have fear, no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. Render to all what is due them, tax to whom tax is due, custom to whom custom, fear to whom fear, honor to whom honor. So, do you want to honor God? Pay your taxes. Now, abide by the tax code? Yes. Maximize every lawful exemption? Yes. Hire a qualified accountant? Yes. Yes. We exercise wisdom and discernment, don't we? So by all means, be wise, be discerning. But we are not to be a people who revolt against government and spurn the Lord's authority in appointing human government. It's not obey God or obey government. If you want to obey God, that's part of our responsibility is to be obedient to governing authorities. We render to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Caesar. Now, what is it that we owe to government and to the leaders over us? Well, here's just seven things that I came up very quickly this week. Seven things that we owe to human government. If you have your pen and pad ready, you can write these down if you like to. What do we owe to government? Seven things. Number one, righteousness and good behavior. Righteousness and good behavior. Romans 13, 3, for rulers are not a cause of fear for good behavior, but for evil. Do you want to have no fear of authority? Then do what is good, and you'll have praise from the same. For it is a minister of God. Look how many times that minister of God appears in this passage, referencing the government. It is a minister of God to you. For if you do what is evil, be afraid. For it does not bear the sword for nothing, but is a minister of God, an avenger, who brings wrath on those who practice evil. And so we are not rebels. We demonstrate the goodness and righteousness of God, by being upright and doing good ourselves. Number two, what is our responsibility? Number two, paying taxes. Again, that's Romans thirteen seven. We are to render to the government the taxes that they require. Again, we follow the law, beloved. We follow the tax code. We follow the law. We do what's right. But whatever is right is what we do. And then it goes back to this question again. Well, yeah, pastor, yeah, but what? what if they're using the money to to do wicked things or to pocket it themselves. Don't we read the news and see the news about all these politicians doing the wrong thing and scheming? Of course. So what do you do? Well, number one, you trust in the justice of God. They're not going to get away with it very long. In the end, I mean, they have to give an answer for what they do before God. So God is a righteous, just judge who sees all things. So entrust yourself to God. Well, what's the second way to go about this And in addition to trusting God, well, you vote them out of office as soon as you can. I mean, if that's our, if that's our government, if we're in a dictatorship and there's no vote, then you can't vote. But if God affords us the ability to vote for our leaders, then we try to do that, trusting in the sovereignty of God. But their wickedness does not justify our being sinful. I don't care how wicked our rulers are, it doesn't make a difference. We are never to be party to sin. We do what is upright. We owe that to our God. Number three, we owe our leaders accepted customs. Romans thirteen seven. render custom to whom custom is due. Just for an example, I was thinking about, well, how does this work in terms of submission to government? If it's customary to stand up when a leader walks in the room, you stand up. If it's customary to address our leader as Mr. President, you do it, even if you didn't vote for the guy. You still pay honor to whom honor and custom to whom custom is due. This is not for his sake. It's for the sake of God. It's a way for us to submit to God's sovereign administration. Number four, what do we owe to government? Reverence and fear. Romans 13, 7, render fear to whom fear is due. After all, the government does not bear the sword for nothing. But what does that mean in terms of fear and reverence? If you get stopped by a police officer, what do you do? You mouth off to him? You you get his badge number and tell him you're going to call his boss? Is that what we do as Christians? I mean, I'm kind of being funny, but sort of not. There are so many times where believers will, will spurn this kind of thing. They wage war on governing authorities, on police, on military, whatever, and they think they're doing it righteously. You're not doing it righteously at all. In fact, do, do us all a favor. Don't tell the officer you're a Christian. Don't tell him you're coming to this church when you do that. Now, we, we owe respect and reverence to those who are in authority over us. Number five, we owe honor. Honor to governing authorities. 1 Peter 2.17, honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Honor the king. That's also Romans 13.7. Same line of thinking. You pay them honor. Yeah, but I don't agree with a single thing he does. That's fine. You lodge that complaint with the Lord and you do whatever you have to do temporally that you're given by rights, but you still honor that person. You honor their position. Because God has put them there. What do we owe government number six? Prayer. Prayer. First Timothy 2.2 two, I urge that entreaties and prayers be made for kings and all who are in authority over us. We are to pray for our leaders. Let me ask you this question and examine yourself. Do you pray for them as often as you complain about them? Do you pray for governing authorities? Do you pray that they'll come to Jesus Christ by faith? Do you pray for their salvation? Do you pray for them to exercise good judgment? Do you pray that they will rule well? I'll tell you, you know, my scope of operation is pretty narrow, but I think it's wise to pray for the governor of the state of New Hampshire. Pray. Because those laws affect us far more than even on a national level. I'm not saying don't pray for the president, but pray, pray for those who are in authority over us. Why? 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 First Timothy 2.2 2 again. So that, here's the result, so that we may lead a tranquil and quiet life in all godliness and dignity. We want to live a quiet, tranquil, peaceful life in godliness and dignity. So therefore, pray for your leaders. Pray for them to govern well and support them in every possible way that you can. I remember, this is just an aside, remember when, when COVID happened, and they all shut us down. Remember that? Our first, my first reaction was to, right? We didn't know what was going on. We had no idea. Some people didn't shut down. Some people rejected that counsel. And that's between them and the Lord. And they have to do what's right. We have to abide by conscience. But we, we actually shut things down for 11 weeks. And there was a point in which I said, that's it, I've had enough. And sought counsel, sought counsel, wise counsel from those who were in leadership in town. And in the end, we subjected ourselves to the governor's guidance. However, I wrote letters. I testified before the House. I testified before the Senate. We did everything in our power and actually worked with the senators who were trying to get things back rolling again. And they were actually grateful to the, to the faith leaders of the state for doing so. And in the end, we kept our conscience We were able to get through the whole thing, and I got a chance to meet Governor uh, at an event recently, and I was able to shake his hand and thank him for his help. And he thanked me as well. Again, that's not anything for our boasting here. I'm just saying if we do it right, it can work. God can be glorified, we can keep our testimony, and things will still move. We honor and respect the governing authorities. Number seven, last one. What do we owe to government Obedience to just laws, Titus 3.1. Remind them to be subject to rulers, to authorities, to be obedient, to be ready for every good deed. Christians are to be a law-abiding people. Again, this brings up the question, what about when the state, when the government, mandates disobedience to God? What do you do then? Are we just to roll over when they try to push us into accepting unbiblical marriage? or abortion or unjust laws what do we do well when the government brings the fight into the church when they cross the boundary into the morality of the church and try to mandate what we're going to do by conscience and obedience to God what do we do acts 539 we obey God rather than man there are times to rebel If they tie our hands and they give us no option, and the choice is this, do what we say or do what God says, and it's in direct conflict, we obey God and suffer the consequences. And there have been many in the church history who have done that. Now, I say that with timidity, brothers and sisters, because that crosses a line for us. It puts us now into persecution. It puts us into suffering. We abide as long as we possibly can, according to conscience, according to the Bible. But if they bring that fight to the door, and they force us to choose, we choose God every single time and trust him. We render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's. And it was with that answer, by the way, that the Herodians were stumped. They didn't know what to do. Jesus was not inciting a rebellion. You never find Jesus doing that. Never find the disciples doing that. He told the crowd to pay their taxes. You do what's right. Yes, you pay Caesar what belongs to Caesar. But he wasn't done. Yes, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, but also this, render to God the things that are God's. In the parable of the vineyard, Jesus tells tells of the owner of the vineyard who sends his slaves into the vineyard to collect what was due to him. But the slaves, they spurned him, remember? And they were punished for it. Jesus even, or Matthew records the response from the Pharisees. Bring those wretches to a wretched end, they say. But here's the thing. Jesus came to Israel, to his vineyard, to collect what was due his father. He came to collect what was owed. But by the end of the week, what do they do? Just like the parable, they kill the son and they throw him out of the vineyard. But here's the thing, the religious leaders, they still owe to God. What did they owe? What was to be rendered to God? Faith, obedience, righteousness, justice, worship, the very things they were destitute of. And yet the Pharisees, they couldn't say a word because on paper they agreed with him. When he says, render to God the things that are God's, they go, sure, that's right. Yeah, well, we'll accept that. And yet they're hypocrites because they rendered nothing to God. Nothing. Amos 5 actually records God's disgust for Israel's hypocrisy. Listen to Romans, or excuse me, Amos 5.21. I keep on saying Romans. I must want to preach it really bad or something. Amos 5.21. This is the Lord speaking of Israel's worship practices. I hate, I reject your festivals nor do I delight in your solemn assemblies. Even though you offer up to me burnt offerings and your grain offerings, I will not accept them. And I will not even look at the peace offerings of your fatlings. Take away from me the noise of your songs. I will not even listen to the sound of your harps. But let justice roll down like waters and righteousness like an ever-flowing stream. See, God demands what is owed to him. Not the false piety that we try try to pass off as righteousness. He wants genuine righteousness. He wants genuine faith, genuine obedience. And I'll tell you, beloved, we can claim to love the Lord. We can claim that we serve him. Yet we bite and devour each other through gossip and slander. That is not paying to God what is owed him. We rob him of devotion... And we put things like social media in its place. We sit on our hands and we could help other people. We spread the gospel of political advocacy and self-serving causes. And we withhold the saving gospel of Jesus Christ. Let me ask you, when was the last time you shared Christ with a non-believer? Think about it. When was the last time you actually told someone that didn't know Christ how to find him? When was the last time you gave your testimony of faith? It is not the job of the preacher to save the lost. It is your job. I only help. We come to the house of God with a list of demands and not a menu of gifts and services. I'll tell you, the American church, and I I get very timid about saying anything about the American church because I believe the bride of Christ everywhere is God's beloved church, but we are, generally speaking, a very self-entitled people. And we go to church for what we can get out of it. We don't go to church for what we can put into it, how we can serve and devote ourselves to the assembly. We complain about others' lack of sanctification, and yet we withhold discipleship. That person's not growing. Disciple them. Pray for them. Befriend them. We say that we're united, yet we live for ourselves. But here's the thing, bride of Christ, we all... Are debtors of mercy and grace. What do we have that we haven't received from God? We possess nothing. We think our money is ours. It doesn't belong to us, it belongs to Him. Our families, our health, our gifts, everything that we have isn't our own. Does not the Bible say, You are not your own, you were bought with a price, therefore glorify God in your body? We owe God. Our very lives, everything, is His. We owe the gospel our faithfulness. Therefore, we are to render to God the things that are God's. Render to God, beloved, your faith and your faithfulness. Give Him your time and your attention. Log in hours with Him in prayer, in Bible study, in meditation of the text. Give Him the time of service Give him your gifts, your talents, your treasure. Render to God your marriage and your children. Submit all of these things to him. Give him your job and your hobbies, your desires and your purity, your future hopes and all your plans. I want to go do all these amazing things. Ask him first. Ask him what he thinks about what you want to do. Render to yourselves, beloved, Everything you have becomes slaves of righteousness, as the Bible says in Romans 6. There's a Romans verse for you. Romans 6, 6, 12 through 23. We are slaves of righteousness, aren't we? We don't have a will of our own. We are to do what the Master wants us to do. Matthew ten thirty nine. Jesus says, He who has found his life will lose it. You think you're building something here? You're going to lose it all. He says, however, he who has lost his life for my sake will find it. You want to find your life? Find it in Christ. Lord, I want to give you everything. I want want everything I do. Does that mean that you sell off everything and become monks and live in the field somewhere? No. No, you do your job to the glory of God. Render to God the things that belong to God. Well, how do I know that there are things in my life I haven't rendered to him yet? What do I do about that? You ask him, you pray about that. And you pray, God, would you please reveal idols in my heart? Would you please reveal things that I have not surrendered to you? I'll tell you, your heart is like a house full of rooms. Are there certain rooms in your heart where the door is locked? Or do you open all the doors and say, Lord, search me, O oh God, and know my heart. Look at everything, God. I'll open all the books up. And just look at everything and see if there's anything in me that is offensive to you, that is not submissive, that does not belong to you, and show me so I can give it to you. Do you have the, the courage enough to do that? To give him your heart, to give him your faith, and your love, and your service? What about your wealth and your obedience? Do you give him your holiness? Do you give him your evangelism? Yeah, but I'm nervous about what people are going to say when I share my faith. Don't worry about it. If they persecuted Christ, they're going to persecute you. Just accept that fact and then just tell people about Jesus. It's going to be okay. And I'll tell you, up here, they don't even know who he is. They have no preconceived notion about who Jesus is. You guys know that. People don't know Christ. So for many people, especially the younger generation, when you talk about Jesus, they have literally never heard it before. It's brand new for them. So share Christ. Tell them about who he is and what he's done. Give yourself over to discipleship, true worship, devotion. Render to God the things that are God's. Verse 22 in Matthew 22 says at the end of all this they were amazed and leaving him they went away. See, the disciples of the Sanhedrin, they went away because not only were they amazed by what he said, but they were also humiliated. Jesus had exposed their hypocrisy and their sinfulness. However, it would not ultimately lead to their repentance because in just a few short days, they were going to arrest him, try him, and execute him by hanging on a cross. And he would die there and be buried in the ground And yet we know the story, don't we? That he rose again the third day. Why did Jesus go to the cross? This is what we tell people, by the way. This is why I talk about the gospel every single week. Most of you have know this gospel backwards and forwards, at least I hope you do, but that's why I share it every single week. Why? To help you, to put it in your mind every single week. That why did Jesus come to this earth He came to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus lived himself a perfect, righteous, holy, submissive, godly life in the flesh. He lived here among us, never once sinning in any possible way, and yet offered himself on the cross. He was nailed to the cross. He died in the place of sinners, in our place, in my place. He was buried and the third day he rose again from the, gra- to the, from the grave to give life to all who would turn from their sins and trust in him. And how do you receive the gift of eternal life? You, you turn from your sins, you repent and you put your faith in Jesus Christ. For God so loved the world he gave his only begotten son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. Beloved, tell people this. This is good news. People who are struggling who are stressed out, who are burdened with guilt and shame, who are suffering under sinfulness, who are caught in addictions, who are terrified, who are depressed, who are at war with other people, who are hateful and hating other people as well. People are hurting right now. You tell them the truth. You speak the way of God in truth. You tell them that Jesus Christ has come to give them life. And turn from their sins and trust in Jesus. And they will have eternal life. And he will set them free. They will no longer be enslaved to this world. They will no longer be enslaved to their own flesh, to their own sin, to the devil. They will now be in service to our great God and Savior. Who is a wonderful master. Who loves us and cares for us. And in whom we have an inheritance that is greater than anything we could ever receive in this life. It is a wonderful gift. Share that with people, and as you do, make sure that you are a people who are upright of integrity, godliness, and submission. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we thank you for your loving kindness and your mercy toward us. Lord, we've stuck our finger in a pretty heavy topic this morning, not because it's difficult or challenging or heavy for you for you oh lord this is very simple you are very clear in the bible what you want us to do but lord we struggle because we are sinful and we don't want to be submissive to anybody and compounding our own sinfulness lord the world is wicked and so many leaders that you have put in place and allowed to be there are wicked themselves and they do not Reign and rule righteously and justly. Lord, even our own rulers have led our country into ruin in so many ways. They do what is evil, O oh Lord. They do not honor you. Our coinage says, In God we trust, but they hate you. But Lord, help us because we want to do what's right. You say that we are lights in the world, that we are the ones that they are supposed to look to to see Christ. That we have this saving gospel. The testimony of the faith of believers is the restraining force by the power of the Holy Spirit. So Lord, you've placed us here as lights in the world. So I pray, O Lord, help us not to cover our light with a basket. Help us to shine brightly, truthfully, righteously. O Lord, let us have courage not to capitulate, not to compromise with truth or with the enemy, I should say, Lord, help us to always be truthful, to be honest, and yet, Lord, help us to be a people who are in submission to you. Help us to be servants of a wonderful master, and that is you, O Lord. We desire godliness. We desire faithfulness. We desire goodness and righteousness. We know that by ourselves, we don't have any of those things. But we know that in Christ, in Christ, we have been robed with righteousness. You, O Lord, have given yourself for us. We are nothing on our own. We are debtors to your amazing grace. and So Lord, let us walk humbly as debtors who owe you everything and yet can't repay a single thing. Help us to worship you. In spirit and truth, you are our Lord and our Savior. And we honor you, our sovereign King. In Jesus' name, amen.